Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Group, all aboard. Hello there listeners and welcome to another edition of The Quiet Carriage here on 94.9 Main FM. It's another beautiful autumn day here in Castlemaine. We're all very busy at the station getting ready for Radiothon 2020. That'll be Saturday 20th of June to the 27th of June. And there's lots going on that week and I'm going to be making some announcements about what's happening with my show. Uh, I think I'll probably be able to make them next week. A little mention that our sponsor, Stoneman's Bookroom, is now open for business, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day of the week. Uh, they obviously aren't allowed to let everyone in the store. I think it's a limited number, around about 10, I do believe. Um, and they do ask if you are sick not to come on in. Um, and they're also not selling newspapers either. Uh, you can also still make an order. Give them a call on 5470-5134. Today, though, it's a full show we've got for you. Later on, I'll be reading an excerpt from the book Thrill Me, which is a new collection of short stories, suspenseful short stories. Um, Out now, the book is edited by Lynette Washington, and it's out via Glimmer Press. And Lynette has been kind enough to allow us to read a short story from there each month. So on each Friday, the first Friday of the month, I'm going to be reading a short story, short suspenseful story for you from that collection. First up, I'm going to be interviewing Donna Matzer about her book, Fauna. Uh, I want to read you a little bit about that. Longing for another child, Stacy is recruited by Lifeblood, a company who offer massive incentives for her to join an experimental IVF program. As part of the agreement, Stacy and her husband's embryo will be blended with edited cells. Just how edited, Stacy doesn't really know, nor does she have any idea how much a longed-for new daughter will change her life and that of her family. Set 17 years into a very recognisable future, Fauna is an astonishing psychological drama with an incredible twist. What if the child you are carrying is not entirely human? Using DNA technology, scientists have started to reverse the extinction of creatures like the mammoth and the Tasmanian tiger. The benefits of this radical approach could be far-reaching, but how far will they go? I wondered what, what will happen when genetic research crosses into the real world and how that might feel, Donna Matzer writes. How will a mother respond and what will she experience? How will a family change when one of them is genetically altered and is love any different? Ultimately, Fauna is a transformative, lyrical and moving novel about love and motherhood, home and family, and what it means to be human. And that's the blurb from the book and the book also comes with high praise. This is from Sophia Laguna, the Miles Franklin award-winning author. Provocative, unnerving, and entirely possible, the most frightening thing about Fauna is that it convinces, utterly, we have all been warned. I want to read you a little bit about the author. Donna Matzer is an award-winning West Australian author of poetry, short fiction, and novels. Her debut novel, The Albanian, in 2007, won the TAG Hungerford Award, and she was the Mick Dark Flagship Fellow for Environmental Writing at Varuna, the National Writers' House, for her short fiction. Donna is a senior lecturer in literature and writing at Edith Cowan University, specialising in eco-gothic fiction, and she lives in a small country town in the southwest with her family, including many chickens. 
Donna's intimate knowledge of the landscapes and estuaries of Western Australia are featured in the setting of fauna, in a world that is close to our own, but underpinned with darkness. And I'm very happy to welcome Donna Matza on the phone now from Western Australia. Donna Matza, thank you so much for talking to us today on The Quiet Carriage about your novel, Fauna. I'm happy to be here, Paul. Can I just start by saying such an incredible novel, and I, I truly mean that. I just, I just wanted to ask you, do you class it as speculative fiction or, or sci-fi? What sort of genre would you say it was? It's a bit hard to fit into a, a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, my publisher have called it psychological thriller mm-hmm. because there's a lot of reality in there. You know, there's a real authentic human, real life feel to it. So it's not like science fiction at all. In fact, it's more like realism. Um, but of course, it's not realism. So I guess it's speculative fiction. Yep. Yeah, there's so much realism in there. To be honest, not many things come across my desk like this so so I found it really refreshing and also also really moving as well and I love the cover with the the mother holding the baby is it and the the baby has her back to us yeah me too yeah so fleshy and claustrophobic which I think is a good description of the novel yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah and it's also weird reading it in the age of corona Anything could happen at the moment. The whole world's fallen apart for the last few months. And it was very sort of, I added an extra layer reading it during this time. And the other thing, I've become a father twice over the last few years as well. And I think that's why it resonated a bit more for me. And I wanted to ask you, are are you a mother? Because the way you write about motherhood is just so, so real. I have um, have two daughters and stepsons. So, you know, I've had children and experienced children growing up and mm-hmm. I've also I've also lost a child and so um, you know, I know that that kind of emotional stuff as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, although I mean there's no autobiography in there of course because it's not in any way about yes. me, it's, it's a character it's about the characters. But um you know, you, as a writer, you draw on your own emotional experiences yep. and your own kind of, that's how you inform your work really is through your own empathy. Yep. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I would say I'm more predominantly a satirical writer, I think anyway. So this is a million miles from what I could ever do, but I, so I'm fascinated. Where does a story like this come from? It started off as a short story, mm-hmm. so um, I wrote I wrote a short story which was basically just the idea of uh, having the screening test that just that that kind of makes up part of the start of the novel, and that was published in Westerly Magazine, mm-hmm. which is a literary journal that comes out of UWA over here, yes, in Perth, um, and that won their award for the best story of the year. So wow. I was you know, encouraged by that. And lots of people kept asking me for more of that story. Yes. Um, and so I guess the original idea came from my reading of the CRISPR technology that has come out in the last few years and uh, what they were proposing to do with extinct species like mammoths and thylacines and that kind of thing. And I know there's a couple of novels about that that have just come out. Um, but I was really interested in what that meant at a kind of moral and ethical level for humans and what would that what that would look like in reality. Yes. And so, you know, because I think we can we can fictionalise all kinds of potential futures, but that's not necessarily what we're going to live. And I, I really like that idea of what's the lived experience of this. Yes. What's what's it gonna do to our, our heart and soul to do this? Yes. What does it mean to the real people involved? Yep. Yeah. And so I guess that's what I was heading with, heading for with the story is that kind of authenticity. Yes. So and the, the landscape is also an important part of it, I guess, too. Yeah, yeah. So the organization is called Lifeblood in the Life in the book. Blood, yeah. Yeah, could you see an organization like that taking root in reality? <laughs> um the- <laughs> They seem to have endless amounts of money, yeah. which some organisations do, and then all of a sudden it comes to a grinding halt, but that's a bit of a spoiler alert. Um, there's, 
Um, in reality, they might be a little different. Yeah. But I do think that it's possible yeah, that, that yeah. this kind of technology could get into the hands of corporations. Yeah. And while I was doing the editing of it, there was that story about the, uh, the Chinese scientist who had done the, the genetic editing on those twins yes. um, in 2018. And uh, I don't think that that's too far from the kind of content of the story. Yep. You know, that, that that is possible, but this can happen as a bit of an outlier, you know, outside of what we accept as, as right and normal in our society. These things can still be going on. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I do think it could happen. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like you put a lot of legwork into the research, in particular of Neolithic peoples. Did you know much about that before you started? Uh, I've been reading about, I had been reading about it for about two or three years beforehand. Right. Um, and I was particularly interested in the kind of new developments that they found about Neanderthal people from their, from the microbiome, so from the microbiome microbes on their teeth for example they can determine what their diet was like what sicknesses they had what medicines they used and so there's you know i read extensively around that stuff so that i could really understand the the kind of contemporary biology and contemporary understanding of them which is really different to what you expect you know it's not they're not they weren't a wild clan of the cave bear type of people they were they were real people yeah. Not that dissimilar to, our, to us, really. Yeah, I find it really quite, quite confronting and eye-opening because I, I didn't know a lot of this.
That was Kraftwerk there with their track, The Model. And now we're returned to part two of my interview with Fauna author Donna Mazza. So it started off as a short story. At which point did you go, wow, this, is, this has got legs. I can, I can open this up to a novel. <laughs> I never planned to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a bit, that's a bit too daunting for me. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so I actually started off with the intention of writing short stories. Mm-hmm. And um, it just kept going. So yeah. every day it just grew bigger. And after um. I kind of hit a certain point, I, re- I realized that that this was a novel and it was becoming so I just kept going yeah and yeah. um yeah and it, it it was yeah it surprised me yeah so, yeah and how long how long did it take to to come up with the finished novel well the research process of reading and preparing for it before I even started writing it was about two years mm-hmm. um, wow. and then to write it to write the first draft took me four months. Right. Um, and then uh, I did the editing and, and um, the process of getting it to publication and, and all up, yeah. you know, it, that's about another sort of 18 months on top of that to yeah, a year to 18 months. Wow, that's so incredible. it's quite a big investment of time and energy, isn't it, when you yeah. think about it? I've never heard about that for a novel, to be honest. Two years of research and then a first draft in four months. Wow. Yeah. That's in, that's incredible. Is this a world you think you'll revisit? I mean, I don't want to go too much into novel because a lot of our listeners wouldn't have read it. But what do you think about the the universe you've you've created? Can you see yourself going back there? Um, I think I could write another one about mm-hmm. the family that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the landscape definitely I will write about again, and um, actually the the work that I'm researching now is about that landscape. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm interested in that landscape and the history of the place and yeah. the, the kind of land use and, and things. So the, the environmental stuff I'm really interested in pushing. Yes. Yeah. On a bit more of that. And, and the characters themselves, yes, they could, they do have the scope to write more about them. I thought so, yeah, for sure. We'll see. Yeah. And by... <laughs> Landscape? Are you referring to where you live? I understand you live southwest WA. Is that correct? Yeah, I do. Um, I actually set the, the story, part of the, the second part of the story, in the landscape where I grew up, mm-hmm. which is near Australind, um, which is on the on the coast. Yes. And um, you know, it's a very beautiful landscape. It has a real primordial feel to it. And um, I, yeah. I plan to write some more about that space. It's just a really beautiful place to write about. It's a beautiful yes. place to be. Um, and, you know, there's something very kind of untouched about it, but it's also, you know, full of people and their business. Yes. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. I know I grew up in Western Australia and you write about it so vividly. I could, when I was reading Fauna, I could see it on the screen whether that be small screen or large screen, has there been any sort of interest? Not yet. Um, I'd really love that. I think mm. it would make a great it'd make a great image on the screen. Beautiful. It's very I'd visual. Love to see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is very visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So this is your. I'm right in saying this is your third novel. Um, it's my second novel. Second um, I have a. An, it's my second published novel. Yes. I yeah. have an unpublished one. Um, We've all got lots but, of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a novella, which is really hard to get published. Yes. Um, so I had two published novels. The first one won the Hungerford Award, which is the award uh, over here for yeah. an unpublished manuscript. Um, and Fremantle Press published that back in 2007. Yes. So, right. you know, it's a long time between, between them. And um, it's unfortunate about all the COVID-19 stuff. Yeah. Because there's no festivals and things to go to at the moment. Yeah, it's such a strange year, isn't it? For, especially for it's writers. It's a very strange year. Yeah, because yeah. your book came out the beginning of this year, didn't it? So you've been really caught up in it. Yeah, yeah beginning of February. Yeah, yeah. I understand you're... So you live in the southwest, or have you relocated to Perth? Uh, yeah, I have lived in Perth, but I live yeah. in the southwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can hear the roosters in the background, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and you're... Yeah, I live in a, 
Yeah. Live in a little country town, yeah. Yeah, right. And you're a lecturer at ECU, is that right? Uh, Edith Cowan University? Yeah, I, yeah, I teach um, writing and literature at Edith Cowan University in Bunbury, which is just yes. near here. Yeah, right. um, and I have, yeah, I have some great people around me. It's a good environment to work in. Yes, yeah. fantastic, yeah. So what's next for you? Like once you finish Fauna, are you the sort of writer that can go on to something straight away, or do you need do you need some time out? Um, I have been working. I've been working on poetry and short stories, which are the other my other love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have another novel which I'm researching and preparing for. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm not the sort of person that can just you know put pens down and then start another one straight away. Mm-hmm. I kind of had to decompress a bit after that one. I think. Um, and yeah, the other one's starting to form, and hopefully, hopefully there'll be time to write it soon. Yeah, yeah. And is that in the same sort of stream as fauna, speculative sort of fiction? Um, there might be a bit of speculative fiction in there, but it's it's probably not so. Hasn't got such um, a strong concept behind it. It's more realism. So mm. yeah, it's an environmental. It's an environmental book. It's about the ecology of, of place over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. And as a writer, how much has your sort of process changed given what's happened over the last few months with, with corona? Um, well, you know, I live in a household with kids and stuff here, so mm-hmm. writing time is, is pretty hard to find, that kind of solitary writing time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know the whole kind of process of writing for me involves that kind of intense focus and solitude which is a bit hard to find at the moment mm, yeah it is yeah. yeah how about reading have you found you've been able to read more yeah i've been reading lots of good stuff it's great actually yeah and really good to be able to support australian writers who i know are facing the same kind of um obstacles as me at the moment in getting your work out there because yes. of all the cancellations of festivals and things Yes, yes. Anything you can recommend to us that you've been reading that stuck out for you? Um, I've really been enjoying The Octopus and I by Erin Hortel, which I I'm reading that. at the moment. I haven't read that yet. It's, it's good, yeah? Yeah, it's really good. Um, I recently read Damascus by Christos Chalkis, which I loved. Yes. Um, couldn't put it down. And it was big too, so it, it um, consumed me, actually. It was great. Wow, um, yeah really took me to another world of yeah. the kind of old the, the story of St. Paul and it was really good yes yeah, I've got both the books here but I just haven't made a start on them yet but I definitely will I'll try and yeah. get them on the show as well yeah yeah and I've been enjoying this this book by Kate Mosky called The Salt Madonna okay I've been reading too mm, who is that really nice. and she, Kate Mosky she's a she's a WA author right um, as well yep yep all right, that's great, Donna. Thanks so much for your time there. I'll I'll let you get back to your roosters in the background. <laughs> Sorry. Um, your your name is Donna Matza. Um, the book Ma- Mazza. Mazza. Mm-hmm. Apologies. Your yep. book is Fauna. It's out now via Alan Unwin. I enjoyed it hugely, so I do recommend it to our listeners. Could you leave us with a song request today? Oh, I'm a big fan of the Triffids. Good choice. You know the Triffids, Paul? Yes, I do, yes. Growing up in Perth, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah, they're West Australian. Yeah, um, and the Triffids and A Trick of the Light. Great choice. And here it is. Donna Mazza, thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Uh-huh.
just the lie It's only an image of hers Just a trick of the lie She sent me letters Gave me directions Name of the street where I should turn Then she stood out front Wrapped in her bath towel Yelling once you leave Boy you can't return The rim of her mouth was golden Her eyes were just desert Oh but that's not her That's not her That's just the lie It's only an image of hers Just a trick of the lie Lockdown Lowdown, a Main FM community update. You want to hear about which markets are on and where? Do you want all the latest news from the Shire? Want to know who's doing takeaway and home delivery food at the moment? Do you need tips for activities to stop the kids from going bananas? Tune in weekdays from 8.45 on 94.9 Main FM for the Lockdown Lowdown. Updated weekly. Lifehouse are designers of simple, serene buildings. We craft spaces and forms that are sympathetic to the environment in which we live and to the needs of our clients. They connect with the eye, mind and soul. Our firm of designers focus on the best energy efficient outcomes, producing beautiful, unique buildings. Contact us to discuss your project. You can find us at lifehousedesign.com.au. Lifehouse Design, creating smaller footprints, award-winning passive solar design and a proud supporter of Main FM. Thrill Me is a new book out via Glimmer Press. It's a collection of suspenseful stories edited by Lynette Washington. And I wanted to read you a little bit of the blurb here. Brimming with anticipation, humor, desire, and strangeness, these stories will quicken your senses and make your spine tingle. In Thrill Me, 31 award-winning and emerging Australian storytellers write to thrill and move you. Read on if you dare. These writers will leave an unshakable imprint on you. And this is a little blurb from Laurie Steed, author of You Belong Here. Notably original, incredibly tense, a must-read for fans of of suspense and great stories. And what I want to do the first Friday of the month in the lead into the end of the year is read you one of these short stories. Lynette Washington, the editor, has been kind enough to grant us permission to do that. The first story I want to read to you is from the author Michelle Yeager. 
I'll read you a little bit about Michelle, a bit of a background. Michelle Yeager is an Adelaide-based fiction writer. She won the L Australia 2018 Short Story Competition, placed runner-up in the Ink Tears 2018 Short Story Competition, and was long-listed for the 2019 Elizabeth Jolly Prize. She is currently working on a novel. And here is Michelle Yeager's story, Chicken Plucking. Mother hands Ada a chicken. It's dead, but fresh, still twitching. It's easier to pluck a chicken when it's still warm. Pluck it, mother says. She knows she can ask Ada this and she will do a good job. On the farm, you can't be squeamish and you must be careful. There are many ways to die in a farm. For this chicken, it was mother's axe. Ada sits on a stool, holding the chicken by the legs and wings to steady the convulsions neck down. Blood drains onto the ground. Ada starts with the back, pulling the feathers in a sharp downwards motion, in the opposite direction to which they lie. She moves quickly. Once the back is done, she starts on the breast. By now, the bird is still. Fine hairs cover the naked body, and they must be singed off. These are not pretty. Ada knows they will bring down the price at market. She watches Granny singe the plucked bird, passing the body through a flame, turning it as she does. If she's not fast enough, the skin can burn, pucker and shrivel. Again, this brings down the price at market. But Granny is nimble and quick, a champion at singeing and plucking. Granny can, on a good day, pluck 13 chickens in an hour. Mother says this is unlucky. Granny says only for the chickens. Ada can pluck a chicken in six minutes. Ava, her sister, can do one in five and a half. Granny praises Ava, pulls her to her bosom and pats her golden head. You shall have extra dumplings tonight, my love, extra dumplings for your hard work. At night, around the fire, the girls are told tales about princes and princesses facing giants and goblins and trolls and dragons and stepmothers and witches, the last two interchangeable, apparently. Don't worry, my lovelies, the princes and princesses live happily ever after. Words that, when they pass Granny's lips, cause a smirk. Mothers a frown. The chicken farm has always been. This is what the girls are told. This is not a fairy tale. This is true. On my honour. The story goes the chicken farm has been passed down the line from generation to generation. Once upon a time there was a mother and a father who grew up out of the ground, and with them grew the chicken farm. A mother and father producing children who married and produced their own children, who married and produced their own children, who married and produced their own children, and so on and so forth. And all looked after the chicken farm, selling chickens to the local villagers. And all lived happily ever after. The chicken farm consists of a house, small and sweet, glazed in sugar it looks. Nibble on my walls please children, it seems to say. Potted pansies by the door, sour milk inside, thick and soupy with air from the lungs of every family member who ever lived inside its walls. A series of hen houses, a barn, an old tractor, and a weed overrun field out back. The earth is filled with chicken skulls. Watch your step, Ava, Ada laughs. The chicken heads will get you. The rooster, a giant specimen with a big red comb, struts and crows and cock-a-doodle-doos at the break of dawn and has its own shelter. Because, as Mother explains, he's a bit of a bully. Because, as Granny corrects, he's a big randy bastard who should be throttled. Father says of the farm, One day this will all be yours, just as it's mine now. Unless you marry, says Mother bitterly, I shall never marry, says Ada. Idiot girl, if you marry you'll have a husband to take care of you, says father. I shall marry a prince, says Ava, and twirls her skirt billowing wide. A prince, says Ada, working in a chicken farm, and she falls about laughing until Granny slaps her over the head. Of course you will, my darling, says Granny to Ava, a prince for my princess. Ava is the elder of the two and looks like a princess, or at least how mother and granny describe princesses. Golden curls and forget-me-not blue eyes, a sweet rosebud mouth. She likes to pick flowers and make daisy chains and sing softly to herself while plucking petals. 
He loves me. He loves me not. Ada likes to play with Cat. Bright orange, a lick of flame and just as deadly. Cat brings her small fat mice. She places them under Ada's bed in a row and mews. There they are, eyes closed, paws together as if in prayer. Ada scratches Cat's chin and tickles her ears. Thank you for my gifts, Ada says. Cat sits in Ada's lap and purrs. If Ada manages to hide these gifts before Mother sees them, she waits until nightfall and slips from her bedroom window and runs with Cat to the barn. Here she puts them in a box filled with ants until they're stripped clean, pretty praying skeletons. She has quite the collection. If, however, Mother finds them, she yells and whips Ada with a spoon. But they're presents for me! Grandad cackles. They're not presents, stupid girl. The animal is showing you how to catch mice. It thinks you're incompetent. Grandad is old and gnarly and spends much of his time in corners on a stool picking over a bowl of peanuts and watches them all, sometimes muttering, sometimes barking orders. When the chickens come close, he kicks out them, cackling. Stupid creatures, he cries. You'll be in somebody's pot soon enough. Ada knows chickens are not stupid. She wants to say, Grandad, remember when we all went out that day for the picnic and it was that day the chickens made their escape? Out of 60 chickens, only 32 were found. 32 is my lucky number, Grandad had said. Grandad spat and swore and father chased the woman, the women around the farm as if they were missing chickens and beat each one. Not badly, only a bruise or two here and there. Nothing to cry over, mother said, that's just life in the chicken farm. Ada thinks it's best not to remind Grandad or Father of this day. Grandad is especially delighted when something goes wrong, when Ava burns herself, or a chicken escapes Mother's grip, or Ada is told off. On such occasions, he pulls his teeth out and laughs, flashing his wet pink gums and champing the teeth together with his hands. Granny ignores him, his usefulness and ability to give a good thrashing expended. He is dead to her. Mother shushes him. Ava smiles prettily, and Ada scowls and think she should have been born a cat and Grandad a mouse. Grandad is missing. No one sits in the corner cackling and flashing wet gums. The women quickly pluck the chickens without taunt or tantrum. Granny and Ava both manage new bests. Cat sits on Grandad's stool and cleans herself. I guess, says Mother, not long before supper, we should look for him. Mother, father and the two girls search the farm. Granny stays behind. I'm not looking for him. She snaps. I'm not lifting a finger. What a foolish thing to go and lose yourself. He's only got himself to blame, careless old bastard. When they return, Granny is knitting by the fire. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Strong, bony fingers gripping the needles. Ada watches those fingers moving like clockwork. I have Granny's fingers, she thinks. She looks at Ava's hands. Ava, who is chopping potatoes for the stew. Ava also has granny figures, Granny's fingers. Odd they look on a girl as delicate as Ava. They all sit down at the table. Grandad's chair at the head is empty, so Father takes it. What if he comes back, Ada says. He'll be angry to see you sitting there. Then I'll move, says Father. Strange for Grandad to miss a meal, says Ava, popping a large chunk of meat in her rosebud mouth. Mmm, Granny nods, gravy dripping down her chin. Father pulls a face. This meat is a bit tough. Ava and Granny lick their bowls clean. The moon waxes and wanes, waxes and wanes, waxes and wanes many times over. Father is going to market. The women are plucking and chopping and singeing and worrying. The women are worried because Father is taking liberties now that Grandad is gone and his watchful eyes with him. Father goes to market, but when he comes back, the chickens that went and the money he returns with don't add up. Ada notices his breath, sickly sweet. She watches him stumble and mumble, yell, cheeks pink and blotchy. Glass-eyed, he takes offence to to any word spoken before passing out in bed or barn. Sometimes Ada leaves a a trail of marbles, accidentally of course. Cat and Ada smile when they hear a crash and cry. When father collects the chickens and leaves in his truck, Granny glowers at mother. I don't know what you want me to do, says mother. Granny shrugs, smooths her apron, and goes inside to knit. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Ava says primly, I shall never marry a drunk. Mother slaps Ava. 
Ava's cheek burns bright. Princes don't drink. Mother laughs until she hiccups. Where do you think you'll meet a prince around here, my girl? The market? Along a country lane? The pig farmers? Supper is taken early and in silence, then to bed. Ada and Kat dream of killing Rooster, roasting and supping on him, sharing the meal with the hens. In their dream, they move out of the house and into his shelter. Under the yolk-yellowed sun, they sleep with the gentle cluck-cluck clucking outside. Under the bone-white moon, they chase moths and nibble at the corners of the sweet little house until it and the occupants are no more, and the chickens run wild. Father does not join them for breakfast. Go get father, girls, mother says. Ada finds father in the barn, resting. She calls to Ava. The sisters look at father sleeping with eyes wide open, head, arms and leg poking out at funny angles from under a large cylindrical bale of hay. Ava picks up the bag of coins that lies just beyond an outstretched hand. Chink, chink, she shakes it. Her pretty mouth sets in a smile and she pours the contents on the ground near father's head and begins to count. Ada pokes father with her foot, and Cat nips his fingers. He's so quiet, says Ada. Ava nods, now press, pressing the bag of counted coins to her chest, and Cat cleans her whiskers. The seasons come and go, come and go, come and go, many times over. Sometimes mother loves Ada and Ava, and sometimes she looks at them and her sage green eyes seethe. Mother might rub her chapped hands together, or pluck at the hairs on her chin, or trace the lines that run rivulets on her forehead. If only her eyes seemed to say, if only things were different. If only this had never happened to me, and this means Ada and Ava. I used to be Bonnie, mutters mother, looking at photos of herself when young. I used to have a lovely figure. Granny rolls her eyes and clickety-clacks with her needles when she's not plucking feathers. Knitting and plucking are what Granny does best. Mother says, Girls, it's time you had husbands. Ada stamps her foot. I'll not have it. You will. I won't. And shakes her fist. Granny tut-tuts and Ava smiles serenely. I've made matches, said Mother. There is a son of the pig farmer for one of you, and the son of of the baker for the other. I don't care which is which, and I'm sure they won't either. Ava's smile disappeared. disappears. I'll not marry any. You will, my girl, says mother. You'll do what I did and what granny did too. That's just the way it is. It's time to grow up and forget about princes and think about the farm. Ava looks at granny. Granny sucks on her teeth and looks at her knitting. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Cat brings Ada two mice. She names one baker's son and the other pig farmer's son. Into the ant box they go. The sun shines in a blue, cloudless sky. Stray poppies and daffodils have sprung up around the farm. Bright yellow chicks run beneath the feet of hens. Mother's fallen on a rake, tripped and pierced her throat. Silly mother, says Ada. But at least there'll be no baker's son or pig farmer's son. No sons of any kind. Granny asks, Who'll chop the chickens' heads? I'll do it, says Ava. Her cuts are clean and sure. The sun rises and falls, rises and falls, rises and falls, many times over. Ava chops the chickens, takes them to market and counts the coins. She meets a man at market. Not a prince, she admits, but close enough. The mayor's son from the nearest village. He's so handsome, she tells Ada and Granny while they pluck and she chops. Granny's getting old, her fingers slip and feathers get forgotten, flesh burnt. Ava eyes Granny. He thinks he can make something out of this farm. He has big ideas. He says there's money to be had in chickens. Hehehe, <laughs> thinks Ada. She is Cat's mother. Granny always says, but who is he? Nothing so special, Ada tells Cat. Maya's son visits, visits, tall and fair, blue-eyed, smile white and even. Ada thinks, too tall, too fair, eyes too blue, smile too wide, too pretty, too much like Ava. Ava's made supper. They sit at a table. Granny slurps and spills her stew, says, what, what, speak up, burps and farts through the meal. A sign of appreciation, she says when reprimanded. Granny's baked for the occasion. A sponge with lashings of cream and jam. A set of false teeth, old and grey, are found when cut. Granny squints. Not mine. Must have been hidden in the flour. 
and leaves the table abruptly to clickety-clack in the corner. Stars cut the night sky, Mare's son says goodbye, says he's had a wonderful time, says he'll call again soon, but he doesn't. A tractor runs Granny over. Ava and Ada find her on their way to collect chicken feed from the barn. Oh, Granny, they shake their heads. Ada says, no one's used that tractor in years. Ava says, good to know it still works. Ada and Ava are alone on the farm. The air inside the house is so thick now that Ada thinks if she were to lick it, her tongue would come away dripping yellow, curdled cream. Ava rolls up her sleeves and begins to clean. Everything must be perfect. She's met someone. She's over Mare's son, which is lucky, she tells Ada, because he was found face down in the village pond. Ava cleans everything, even the air, the damp smell of generations. Throws out moth-eaten and chicken-shit-stained clothes. Grandad's stool is burned. Father's liquor buried. Mother's photo albums are hidden in the attic. Granny's knitting needles are given away. Fine dresses, linens, china and silver are rotted in. Pretty curtains hung and walls freshly painted, new rugs laid out. Fewer people to feed means more money. We must forget the past, says Ava. Only now the future matters. Ada and Cat play in the henhouses, catch mice in the barn. Beloved is coming tomorrow, says Ava, setting down chicken pie for supper. Beloved is what she calls him. And she tells Ada nothing else. Ava has set the table with napkins and candles and a small pot of pansies and polished the silver. Practice for tomorrow. Ada has made rhubarb and custard for dessert. What a meal they are going to have. And there is nobody here taunting or beating or bossing or clickety-clacking. Wait, says Ava. I'm going to find some matches to light the candles. When Ava leaves the room, Cat jumps up on the table. Cat paws at Ava's pie and licks it before Ada can stop her. Ada swaps her plate with Ava's, pushes the meat back into place. Ava returns, brandishing the matches. It'll be so pretty, our last meal together before Beloved enters our lives. Ada sits with Cat on her lap. Cat purrs. Custard and rhubarb stick to lips and whiskers. At the other end of the table, chicken pie, part-eaten. Ava is quiet and still. Golden curls, forget-me-not eyes, and skin and ethereal hue of blue catch the light of the flickering candles. Her lovely lips are pulled back in an almost smile. Behind the curtains, a pale light grows. Today, beloved will come calling. What he looks like and when he'll come, they do not know. They'd ask Ava, but she stopped speaking hours ago. Ada blows out the candles. Outside, rooster crows. Cat licks her lips. And that was the short story, Chicken Plucking, written by Michelle Yeager. And it's available in the book, Thrill Me which is edited by Lynette Washington and is out now via Glimmer Press and is available to order from all good bookshops.
Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbells Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. And that was Mac DeMarco with his track, Let Her Go. A big thank you to Donna Matza, author of Fauna, which is out now on Alan and Unwin, for speaking with us today. And a big thank you to Lynette Washington, the editor of the new collection of short stories, Thrill Me, out now via Glimmer Press. And the story I read there was by Michelle Yeager called Chicken Plucking. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Remember, you can catch us 1 p.m. Fridays and 4 p.m. Mondays on 94.9 Main FM and also mainfm.net. And all shows are available on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. You can find out more information there at my website, pauljlaberty.com. Next week, we have another recording from the Wheeler Center. I'm going to play you an interview Peter Carey did um, a few years back. And it's also time for the TQC Book Club. I would like to leave you a check. I'd like to dedicate this check actually to my wife, Anna. It's her birthday on Monday. And this is actually our wedding song, Where Do You Go To My Lovely by Peter Starstead. Until next time, keep reading. Talk like Marlena Dietrich And you dance like Zizi Jarmer Your clothes are all made by Balmer And there's diamonds and pearls in your hair Yes, there are You live in a fancy apartment Off the boulevard Saint-Michel Where you keep your Rolling Stones records and a friend of Sasha Distel, yes you do But where do you go to my lovely When you're alone in your bed Tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do I've seen all your qualifications You got from the Sorbonne And the painting you stole from Picasso Your loveliness goes on and on Yes it does When you go on your summer vacation You go to Jouin Lapin With your carefully designed topless swimsuit You get an even suntan on your back and on your legs And when the snow falls you're found in Samoritz With the others of the jet set And you sip your Napoleon brandy But you never get your lips wet, no you don't But where do you go to my lovely when you're alone in your bed Won't you tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do Your name, it is heard in high places You know the Aga Khan He sent you a racehorse for Christmas And you keep it 
just for fun, for a laugh. <laughs> They say that when you get married, it'll be to a millionaire. But they don't realize where you came from. And I wonder if they really care or give a damn. Where do you go to, my lovely? When you're alone in your bed Tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head Yes, I do I remember the back streets of Naples Two children begging in the rags Both touched with a burning ambition To shake off Their lowly bone takes and they try So look into my face, Marie Claire And remember just who you are Then go and forget me forever But I know you still bear the score deep inside Yes, you do I know where you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed I know the thoughts that surround you Cause I can look inside your head Here comes the sun, and here comes Main FM's Radiothon. Kicking off winter solstice when the days get longer and the music gets stronger. Community radio has never been more important, and we're asking you to dig deep and show your support for the best little station in the nation. Tune in the 20th to the 27th of June for a full week of Radiothon with a bountiful of prizes up for grabs. To subscribe, call 54724376 or go to mainfm.net. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. Castlemaine Community House is working with many groups across the Shire to address well-being, mental health and the increased risk of family violence during these challenging times. We are working to deliver courses and workshops remotely and would love to hear from you about other programs or support we can offer. Visit cch.org.au or call 54724842 for information or to share ideas. Stay connected with Castlemaine Community House, Main FM sponsor. 